Welcome to a special 15-year anniversary episode of Stories from the NNI. I'm Lisa Friedersdorf, Director of the National Nanotechnology Coordination Office. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Bill Wilson, the Executive Director of the Center for Nanoscale Systems at Harvard University. Bill began his professional career at Bell Labs studying the ultrafast photophysics of semiconductor quantum dots. His research has focused on the study and development of advanced materials for devices for a broad range of photonic applications. He has extensively explored an array of engineered self-assembly multi-layer materials and has developed semiconductor laser devices for low-cost, high-speed optical communication systems. Bill, thank you so much for joining us today. To get us started, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you first got involved in nanotechnology? Sure, and I thank you for inviting me, Lisa. It's a pleasure to talk to you. I mean, kind of from my early days, I'm basically a kid from Philadelphia who spent his childhood disassembling everything. I mean, I've always wanted to know from a very young age how things work. And the reality is my scientific career has simply been an extension of that, right? My interest in nanoscience has been driven by my interest as what I've always called a condensed matter chemist, really trying to sort out how atomic and molecular interactions you know, evolve and define the bulk properties of things, the bulk properties of materials that get used in advanced applications. And so nanoscience kind of has fallen kind of naturally from that. I kind of see nanoscience as a strategy for trying to do materials engineering. And that's kind of always how I've seen it. As you know, this year, the National Nanotechnology Initiative is celebrating its 15-year anniversary. From your perspective, could you share some of the key research advancements that, that you feel have been made over the past 15 years? You know, that's a really tough question because the reality is, is that nanoscience and nanotechnology are pretty ubiquitous now, right? We have nanoparticles in everything from the food we eat to the medicines we use to the clothes we wear. Nanotechnology is in all of our electronics and a lot of the mechanical systems we use. And so when you really come down to it, there isn't any one particular advance I would say is more important than any other. It's just a matter of the fact that nanoscience in general has become the basis on which most of the technologies we use today have been built or at least optimized. I do understand what a challenge it is to identify some of the, the key advances. And we often get asked, well, where is nanotechnology in industry or where, you know, where has it gone? Where is the market? And it's a really hard question to answer because it is everywhere and, and also it's invisible. I mean, no pun intended, but people don't highlight the nanoness. They highlight the attributes well, that are I wouldn't say invisible. that it's invisible. I would say that it's, it's so ubiquitous we don't think about it, right? We don't think about the fact that we have uh, nanoparticles in all of our cosmetics, right? We don't think about that the dyes on our clothes and a lot of the fibers that are used in our clothes are based on nano-synthesized materials, right? And I think that's one of the reasons why it becomes difficult in part because the answer to the question is that it's everywhere. In many ways, you know, we fulfilled almost all of Feynman's vision. I mean, Feynman had a vision of what he thought nanoscience would become. And the only thing that we haven't done is we haven't developed little nano robots everywhere. Biology has beaten us to that. <laughs> so if you say that we've done everything that, that Feynman 
uh, laid out, do you think we're done? Not, nanoscience has, has achieved everything it needed to achieve? No, because I think nanoscience in general really has created a toolbox of techniques and instruments that we can use as we evolve forward. I mean, as we try to take advantage of our ability to control and manipulate, you know, atoms and molecules at the nanoscale, uh, nanoscience is now kind of encompassing that. I mean, a, a really good example of that is this new focus on kind of quantum engineering and quantum science strategy. All of that stuff is based on the techniques of nanoscience, right? And and so there is no separation. It's, it's just a toolbox that we're now extending into other application spaces. So speaking of the, the toolbox and the, the tools and instrumentation that have been developed under the NNI, as executive director of the Center for Nanoscale Systems at Harvard, you're, you're part of the national network, the National Nanotechnology Coordinated Infrastructure, which you know, is one of the hallmarks of the NNI when we look at our third goal, which is to develop a physical cyber and human infrastructure to support nanotechnology research and development. Can you talk from your view on what impacts you've seen on the facilities available to do nanoscale research and development? Yeah, I mean, I would say CNS in particular serves in many ways as a training and prototyping hub for people kind of working, utilizing nanoscience tools. We're fundamentally a one-stop shop for all things nano, whether you're doing nanoscale fabrication or trying to characterize materials and devices at the nanoscale. The other thing that we serve, though, is we really do serve as an interdisciplinary crossroads where people from different disciplines get an opportunity to explore a range of techniques that they normally would not have considered. I mean, what we often forget is the tools of nanoscience, especially the tools of nanofabrication, were tools that were developed to develop integrated circuits. And what we've been doing for a good fraction of the last 10 or 15 years is co-opting those techniques for science development they were not intended for. And the idea is teaching this new set of tools to researchers in the biological sciences or researchers in chemistry has really redefined what those research spaces look like because they have new tools to do the kinds of work they want to do. And that's the real value of a center like ours is that it really is an opportunity to train people in areas that are not necessarily in their natural wheelhouse and allows them to go far beyond the kind, to have ideas far beyond what they've been able to have before because they get access to tools that they would not normally get access to. You referred to your center really serving as an interdisciplinary crossroads. And I, I want to talk with you a little bit about what we sometimes refer to as the ecosystem that's been developed under the NNI and the fact that interdisciplinarity or multidisciplinarity working across discipline boundaries, which was a novelty in the early days of nanotechnology is really seen as one of the areas that has changed science as a whole and how that brings people together, as you said, outside of their natural wheelhouse. Could you perhaps give some examples of collaborations that you've been involved in that really grew out of this ecosystem? Yeah, I would say that all of the advanced materials work that I've done in the last 10 years has all been driven by interactions within this ecosystem. In fact, I think if you really think about it, 
the way science is done now has evolved to the point where it's really a, become a collaborative contact sport. I mean, the days of, you know, a physicist designing an experiment and sitting in his lab by himself with a few students and doing an experiment and writing a paper, those days of science are gone. And, you know, we do a ton of science via Skype with international collaborators all over the world working on kind of every little aspect of the problem because to really take advantage of the tools and facilities available both nationally and internationally, a collaborative dynamic is needed. And so, for example, you know, I did lots of work studying kind of carbon nanotube materials and devices, carbon nanotube transistors, and all of the electronics development was done using nanofabrication techniques that I never knew about when I was a graduate student. All of the characterization techniques were things that I never learned about as a graduate student. And for an individual to collect all of those resources in one place to do those measurements is almost impossible, right? And so these collective centers, like our center, these mid-scale research facilities all over the country are really required now for people to do good science because you need input from a wide variety of skill sets to actually do science well. To a certain extent, you could argue it's kind of the, the evolution of the Bell Labs model, right? I mean, what made Bell Laboratories an extraordinarily productive place is you had an ensemble of scientists with a wide range of skill sets and scientific interaction was basically driven by enthusiasm. It was driven by your walking into your colleague's office, grabbing him by the neck and saying, your life will have no meaning unless you work on this with me. <laughs> and that was effective. <laughs> I think that that, uh, that attitude has started to, to move out into the university. And being driven, I think, in part by universities that have robust shared facilities. And people are seeing that if you have robust shared facilities, junior faculty get started faster, they develop collaborations quicker, they become more productive more quickly. And so people are now starting to understand that this is really the way you need to do this. So can you comment on the use of the facilities by small businesses or spin-out companies or industry in your area? Yeah, it's kind of a mixed bag in the sense that everybody has a different agenda when they use our facilities. We have lots of small companies who are kind of either true startups or near startups who are fundamentally doing kind of prototype development. They're still trying to understand the physics of their systems. They're still trying to work out the basic processes of how you build things. But we also have kind of mid-sized and large companies that do their prototyping in our labs so that they won't disrupt current product processes that they have in their own laboratory. But they also get the benefit, I think, of being in an environment where there's a lot of uh, dynamic activity ongoing. There's a lot of synergy among a wide variety of scientists. So they, don't, they won't admit it, but they get lots of ideas from working around our students and our staff because we often ask questions that are very different than the questions they would ask Right. because they know too much about what they're doing. Right. Sometimes those naive questions actually spark an entirely new direction. I want to switch gears a little bit and, and talk about some of your research. So key challenges in optical data storage include increasing capacity and lifetime and decreasing energy consumption. What are the ways that nanomaterials are, are helping to meet those challenges? The primary way I think that nanomaterials have uh, helped 
to meet those challenges in a wide variety of both optical and traditional storage applications is really given us the ability to manipulate materials, give us the ability to do designer materials for optical storage, to be able to structure and nanostructure uh, magnetic materials so that we can optimize their ability to store information more efficiently. And we shouldn't discount our abilities to characterize the materials that we already use much, much better so that we can make them better. Um, and so nanoscience has had an impact on several different levels, particularly in materials design and in materials characterization. And all of that helps us to optimize the technology. Uh, so I want to look to the future a little bit. As you look to some of the most significant challenges that are facing the nation or the world, where do you see opportunities for nanotechnology to help provide solutions? I still think kind of in the same spaces. I mean, really providing the ability to develop advanced materials. I think this whole effort to take advantage of quantum mechanical phenomenon in materials to make new devices and driving kind of communications applications and quantum computing and other things is a really important area. And I think that nanoscience will always be at the front end of that because, like I said, a lot of those attributes become manifest at the nanoscale. The real challenge, though, is kind of moving from prototyping of a lot of these devices to trying to do things that are a little bit larger scale. So one of the, the my current, my, one of my pet peeves is the idea that we don't invest enough in advanced materials development. We invest quite a bit in materials research, but as the research platform needs to move to a platform through which engineers can innovate, we don't do enough investment there. An example I always use is the silicon wafer, right? I mean, silicon technology is born because of the investment that was made uh, by Bell Laboratories and some Japanese companies in defining what a silicon wafer was and making sure that every silicon wafer was the same, it was the same size, it had the same degree of oxide on it, getting a standard innovation platform that the community could use to evolve and uh, advanced integrated circuits. For a lot of the advanced materials that we're thinking about, for these 2D materials, for some of these superconductor-based materials, for things like carbon nanotubes, we need that same kind of investment if those materials are really going to get to the point where we can innovate on those platforms to make devices that will uh, drive our next generation of technology. Bill, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Do you have any closing thoughts that you would like to share with our listeners? Just the notion that you should keep in mind that science is a contact sport and that collaborative work really is now the, the engine of innovation in our country. And, and, you need, and, and young scientists and young engineers need to take advantage of that. Those resources are out there. People are waiting to collaborate with them and they should be thinking about it that way. Thank you for joining us today for this special 15-year anniversary edition of Stories from the NNI. If you would like to learn more about nanotechnology, please visit nano.gov or email us at info at nnco.nano.gov and check back here for more stories. 